from the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. 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 Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Gerald. Episode 3's topic is Hallowed Placemaking, localized, place-based community building. Written by Adrian Marie Brown in the book Emergent Strategy. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. The patterns of the universe repeat at scale. There is structural echo that suggests two things. One, that there are shapes and patterns fundamental to our universe. And two, that what we practice at a small scale can reverberate to the largest scale. And then by Grace Lee Boggs, transform yourself to transform the world. There is light. We want to have conversations with folks doing the good work, living the good life, co-creating the good life in their places. During this segment of the podcast, we'll take some time to shed a little light on the good people of the world who are the little lights of hope and abundance. Chris Lawrence spent most of the previous 25 years being a community organizer and associate pastor in London, working most recently as a stipendiary minister with the United Reformed Church. He has a passion for small is beautiful, neighborhood-focused ministry and church planting in urban poor communities. He loves being a husband and dad, married to Naomi, who is a street artist, with four children ages 15, 13, and twins who are two years old. A newcomer to the U.S. and New York, he is developing a strong loyalty to East Harlem and is able to find many opportunities there to continue his lifelong interest in all things Mexican. He is ordained in the United Church of Christ. My name's Chris Lawrence. Um, I'm a pastor, a UCC pastor in a church which is scarcely viable. It's about 15 people in the congregation, but... Uh, it's been here for 70 years and we are very excited that for the last four years we've been doing nothing uh, unusual but we just rather regular rhythms of um, building relationship with neighbors so the reason I'm here is because we got called as a family to come over and help them reconnect and re-engage with their neighbors uh, to help the congregation to start all over again um, we've we've been involved in um, community organizing and church ministry in London. I've been really localized. I've been in the same zip code in London for 25 years and never thought I'd end up on this side of the Atlantic. So I've done, I've done that shift, but I'm still finding myself incredibly uh, tuned into the hyper-local. Uh, that's the way I survive in big cities, is to just drill down and stay very close to home. Mm-hmm. That's so, me, that's, uh, is being hyper local is that part of the good life for you? 
the good life for me is uh, is time full time full patient experience of neighbours. So for me to live in the city uh, is an unprecedented opportunity to be surrounded by uh, thousands of people within five minutes of my front door. But if I don't have time and energy and uh, an experience of being interrupted in my flow by my neighbours, then I feel like I'm missing out on something really fundamental and humanising. So for me, the good the good life has a lot to do with the stoop culture of being able to hang out and be be available to hear people, see people, and let them get into your life as well. And that's pretty strange and and uh, uncommon in Manhattan, New York. Uh, most people are. It would seem on the surface that most people are rushed and determined to get places in a hurry. And you think, well, I'm trying to go against the flow and swim upstream a bit. So this is the this is a good life for me. It's patient, slow, loyalty to one place. Mm. Not spending more of your life within five minutes of your front door than than outside of that neighborhood. So. Okay. And what what? How'd you get here? Like, how did you get to that that place where the good life is for you to be spending most of your life five minutes away from your door? Uh. It's partly, I think, I mean, many people might agree, that a lot of it is a reaction to experience of suburbia, where um, in my youth and childhood, uh, and then all the way through my student years, it felt like you're spending an awful lot of time trying to connect people, like connecting the dots across a city. Um, and it, it, was very, uh, it was very different when I moved into London as a 21-year-old. Twenty-two-year-old, and I began to realise that a lot of people don't move very far from their from their street. So it was a it was an experience for me of uh, being thrown into a poor community, which was uh, being hit quite rapidly by the impact of large numbers of people arriving from other parts of the world, um, often as refugees, asylum seekers, with almost nothing uh, literally coming in a time of crisis, and a lot of the activity that I got involved in was based on proximity. It was that these people were arriving at a particular address and for the whole of that summer, this was in 1989, for the whole of that six-week summer I was involved in helping them to find shelter, basic sustenance and organizing people and it had to be done within 10 blocks. So I had a, a bit of an intense experience then which really fixed my mind on the idea of what can happen when in a, in a city as global as London, you can create an urban village that is made up of people who take responsibility for each other, even though they've never had any common history until that point. Hmm. Um, so that was a bit like a baptism for me of realizing that uh, there's something adventurous and exciting and countercultural in uh, reaching a place where you recognize each other in the street and, and you've been responsible for helping them to settle in after a traumatic experience of... Uh, you know, they've been dispossessed of everything and they've traveled across the world to get to your city. They've arrived on your street and then they've been experiencing hospitality from strangers. Um, excuse me. So in your particular neighborhood, as it stands right now, what kind of things need to put in place so that you, you are having this common uh, covenantal relationship like you described in London? Because you're not necessarily in the midst of a crisis, or are you? 
No, we're not. We're not in a position where we've suddenly got three thousand eight hundred people arriving in six weeks, all in the same place. Um, we're finding we're finding it much more difficult to create the team. Um, the the way that I see neighbouring or re-neighbouring going is that you need to have about a dozen people who are motivated to begin with. Mm. It's a bit like church. It's a bit like church planting. I mean, most people that plant churches. They need to have at least a dozen people to hope to you know, launch something. Well, we're sort of doing a church plan, but we're also doing a re-neighbouring initiative, and it's uh, blurring the, the distinction between the two. And I feel like the hardest thing is to get 12 or 15 people who are engaging in a similar sense of this is a vital missing element. Um, one of the ways that we are trying to get this off the ground is to focus on people who have very little choice about uh, moving outside the neighbourhood because they are limited. You know, they might have uh, limited by age or mobility, or just they've lost the urge to travel. So we're working with the over sixties, and, and that's maybe where we're going to go for our initial core group, um, focusing on people who are already here and have a lot of enforced leisure and uh, don't necessarily have a lot of stimulation from inter- interruptions in their lives and meeting people all the time. So we're trying to coax people down onto the onto the sidewalk and make it possible to have a pleasant and safe experience meeting strangers outside. Hmm. And what, what was the question again? Well, just um, in your particular place, what makes for the how yeah. how are you going to make the common good happen? Yeah, I think making conversations between people who aren't already uh, in contact with each other. So there's a limited number of exchanges that happen between people that live in the same street. Some people can live on the same stoop, the same sidewalk, the same walk-up, and they never meet each other or have a conversation in more than a few seconds. So getting to the point where people have first name, they know each other on first name terms, they are curious about each other, they have interest in each other's lives, they've been given some chance to sort of chill out together, and it's not based on affinity or common uh, other common elements. It's just trying to create that type of interaction between people who are otherwise complete strangers to each other, but they share the same um, bit of the sidewalk. So we're, we're focusing on that, and as I say, we're trying to focus on the over 60s um, as the primary group at the moment, and then diversify after that. And you are also raising twins who are what? And like teenagers, two? yeah. We've got toddlers and teenagers, yeah. two-year-olds and, and teenagers. So we've got a very interesting family dynamic as well. So we're interested in a high school students. Uh, so part of what we're doing is not only working with the over 60s, but also with the 15 to 17-year-olds and trying to put those two groups together a bit. And hmm. um, imagine how... Uh, Growing up in East Harlem as a 15, 16 year old can become um, more than just a sort of a conveyor belt to getting out of the neighborhood. How we can win their hearts and minds back to the idea of perhaps moving into this neighborhood when they leave home, when they leave college, and being able to be part of the next generation in this same place where they grew up, mm-hmm. which is not, not really an option at the moment because of the gentrification issue and, and the high price of renting. So people are being displaced pretty easily? Yeah, and we're trying to counteract that by imagining a way of buying apartments that we can rent out cheaply. So, using collective buying power—that's a whole—that's a whole new initiative as well. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten anywhere with that? We're trying to get about thirty investors to put in about five to ten thousand each for five years, so that we can buy our first condo. Right. Um, 
and then we'll be able to rent that to some of these maybe college graduates uh, that can share and then give five to ten hours a week of their time to uh, this type of activism on their on their street on their on a neighborhood basis um, so that's where we're at we're trying to create this uh, it, you know movement of buying back rental properties that could be uh, cheap financing using friendship and trust um, amongst a syndicate of people and then we can allocate these accommodate these these options these housing options to people who really want to stay local mm-hmm. and who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to rent so. mm-hmm. are there other places or other ministers that influenced your way of thinking about this in the u.s i would say it's been something which i've looked at from across the other side in, in london i was there but but reading and meeting people who were collecting stories of often christians that were wanting to make more of their relationships on the neighborhood basis so communities that were intentional and simple way was an example you know that's well known often uh, maybe the too many stories told about the same place so we took a group from here to visit there and it was really worthwhile and important to realize that they're just like us in some ways and finding their way and just to appreciate how uh, small scale they were mm-hmm. how limited the number of streets were that they were trying to relate to that was encouraging for us um, I guess I've heard about other initiatives in other parts of the US but my, my inspiration has mostly been derived from uh, 25 years in London where I was often one of the uh, only, there was one, only one of the exa- one of the only examples of people trying to work on a parish basis on a local basis and there were a few churches that were nested inside public housing that were also that localized that were trying to relate to maybe 15,000 people that, that were living in the surrounding blocks hmm. but most of my um, Ray Bucky was a great inspiration to me a Baptist minister in Chicago who wrote books and spoke at various events and was often talking about spending time walking the streets and trying to imagine uh, the connections between faith and location I've noticed a lot of people when I go to meetings they take a moment to honor the ancestors of that particular place and they talk about them they often will introduce it like let us acknowledge that which is in the ground and they'll name the native people who live there and if there was any other kind of like a history that had happened there they'll name that does the kind of the the history that is in the ground does that influence the ways in which you do church ministry now or is it like the place that it is now is what is um what is influencing you or both um oh both both i think that it's been great having a museum on our street which is one of the leading examples of a city museum trying to trying to encourage you to think backwards in time mm. so we have the city of you know the museum of the city of new york which is a place i go frequently with my young toddlers because uh, it's a great place to hang out on rainy days so that helps you to get a sense of depth i love the fact that in um, all the cities i've lived in uh you can sometimes do this time travel where your brain takes you on a journey where you look at a building and you can imagine it in 100 years ago and you see some sign of uh, of its history 
Um, I'm just getting acquainted with the original history of this ground. I mean, I feel like with Central Park just five minutes away, you do begin to sense there's a bit of, I mean, I know it's been landscaped, but there's still a lot of the original Manhattan, uh, you know, actual, what it would have looked like in, in, the, in the 1800s, 1700s. 1600s and so I'm feeling like I'm starting to make that journey even further um, I'm intrigued about the reason why East Harlem's always been the poor end of town and that if you go just a few blocks south it suddenly becomes wealthy um, and part of that is because of the journey that the, the train comes out of the uh, out of the tunneling into the into the open air and I think that created a sort of a a, a hostile environment where people used to, you know, get rentals were lower priced at that point. So I'm, I'm learning a bit about the backstory. In, and I think in terms of honoring and appreciating the people that have gone before, um, some of what we're doing here is trying to uh, encourage, encourage a storytelling of the future. So we're trying to give people a sense of like, it's not just protection of them about a particular period of time when certain language or um, culture groups were dominating. It's about trying to make uh, a story come true of what could this neighborhood look like if we were able to live in a more um, common good mentality. And so, I mean, some, somehow I feel like we've got stuck in a certain uh, interpretation of East Harlem, a Spanish Harlem that existed, was particularly strong around the 1920s to the 1960s. And we are finding it difficult to integrate, for example, the Mexicans that are coming in who don't belong to the classic power dy dynamics of who, who controls what. So some of what I'm doing is, uh, as an outsider and immigrant myself, trying to imagine what it looks like to describe our neighborhood as a place that is um, building a city of the future. Hmm. Um, it's, a tough, it's a tough balance to sort of like do both. Um, it sounds a bit like... Uh prophetic imagination yeah I mean it's it's really just daydreaming and saying if if people have you know part of the difficulty here is there's a lot of um, fractionism, fractionalism around who belongs and who doesn't belong who's coming in last is it the last in that therefore should be the first out you know there's a lot of, of sense of like being invaded in fact 96th Street which is only a few blocks south of us has always been a boundary between very wealthy people who feel that they own the whole place and those of us in this neighborhood who have very little resource. And that's been there for 70 years without changing, at least, if not 170 years. But we're still focusing on um, affluence in pockets in our own neighborhood as if it's a new thing. So one of, one of the things we're trying to do is to tell the story of our neighborhood as being in a divided city. And that is a continuous story that needs to be recognized as part of an, in, in, an intrinsic problem in America and not just a result of something changing in the last 20 years, which mm -hmm. we call gentrification. So there's an example of trying to take um, a historical perspective that is saying, why has there always been a city of two halves? Um, why has Manhattan been so deeply divided around wealth and poverty? And we haven't named it or talked about it very much. And sometimes I feel like the gentrification politics right now is in, is in a dangerous place where it's trying to create a sense of new danger, which is forcing us to be 
deeply hostile to any newcomers, whether they're from poor communities themselves or from wealthy places, you know. And that's not a good environment to breathe. That feels quite toxic. Right. Yeah, I feel that way with our own space. I mean, we've been working so hard to resist displacement that it's almost, it's really hard for us who are super friendly, outgoing. We talked about, you know, community building and all those things, but it's hard for us to make new friends with the people that have come here. Um, yeah. And those people are not the ones that have displaced the other neighbors. It's not like they just like, they chose to pick them up and move. This is beyond really their control. And so, you know, we have to be really careful not to call them gentrifiers or um, not to see ourselves as other. But at the same time, when we walk around the neighborhood and we begin to like visually see the differences, there is this like gut heart sadness that happens that I can't, I want to imagine the possibility of these differences and there be delight there, but there's still, there's still some mourning and sadness that, that I encounter when I see the changes that are happening. And I'm trying to live into that idea, yeah. but I haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah. I mean, certainly in the, in the 1970s, it was possible for people in their twenties who were on their first part-time or full-time job to be able to rent anywhere in this neighborhood and stay committed to this local community. So if they came in as, uh, people doing a sort of a bit of community service after college or they were connected through some family relationships they could actually decide to move in and stay for a good decade and then sometimes they stayed for the whole of their you know adult lives but that isn't an option anymore it does feel deeply sad that if you grow up in this neighborhood and you start to get a taste for community organizing and how your life can be um, making a difference for the better it's really hard to then um, choose to stay long enough and pay pay the necessary high rent to stay in the poor community that you've been growing up in. So that's that's a really strange contradiction going on. Um, you either have to be incredibly poor and willing to be housed almost anywhere that that's chosen for you without any control. You can't opt to be choosing to, this neighbourhood to stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it creates a really uh, pretty hopeless perspective in terms of what about the next generation growing up in these streets and how can they contribute to the life of the, the community that's nurtured them. That mm. whole thing has seemed to be awfully quaint and uh, belonging to a past age that doesn't have any chance of happening again. Hmm. So even, I mean, theoretically speaking, that could be even your own children. If you yeah. raise them up yeah. to be neighboring well and to re-neighbor and then to find their way on their own and then they wanted to come back and they couldn't even afford to come back. Yeah. That's totally it. And there's a lot of people we get together in a couple of weeks who are, who are nostalgic about their time when they were in their 20s uh, and, and learning to, to sort of cut their teeth on community organizing. They learned it in this neighborhood and they're realizing that they couldn't, that couldn't be possible now for people growing up in the late teens, they can't imagine themselves staying in the same neighborhood. So as part of the motivation towards addressing the housing uh, needs and trying to at least create a, a network of linked households that, uh, you know, linked apartments that we can say are available for people that want to commit some of their regular hours every week to community organizing here. Hmm. Well, 
I mean, I know that you're a point. Were you a is the UCC a point ministers, or you just kind of got hired and you went there yourself? You pretty much get hired. I mean, the UCC has to moderate in some ways and try and help a congregation to fit into a pattern of what's good practice. But given that we're an inner city church on its last legs, it hadn't got any resource that you could really use to 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 fit in with the pattern of what's normal. Right. So we were basically hired as a one-off, and then the association of the conference concur if they think it's uh, looking okay in the end. Mm-hmm. But it more or less locally led. Right. So then, in a way, I'm just wondering if the constraints of the culture in the city make it to where this might be sustainable for you but not for the people that you're bringing up perhaps then is there you know the catholic worker had um you know they had the city space and then they had another space that maybe wouldn't feel the same restraints um so far as like housing so you know catholic worker has the farm or the country space and then they have the city space and then that's kind of the way in which they're able to hold community with one another or even like the Bruderhof has multiple locations and then they can kind of move people around and then it's I I guess it is place-based but it's also this movement thing it's like a transition thing all at the same time does that ever come into your mind as a possibility yeah I mean I think there's um in the sense that they have always relied on big properties which they can have shared and cut the costs by having people living in under one roof um, it's definitely appealed to me. I mean, I wish that could be an option here. There are some big properties, namely uh, Catholic presbyteries that have been closed two years ago and left empty and will be empty for the next five years. And they've all got eight bedrooms in them and they could become very dynamic hubs for community, uh, you know, intentional community. Um, there's 20 storefront churches in our 20 blocks and they, they open an average of about one hour a week and they're often run by people living in New Jersey or Queens and traveling in and those could all become ideal for uh, conversion into mission housing so I wish there could be a movement to try to help people to uh, not just have um, an intention to to do well in the neighborhood but actually to be physically located here um, and be able to thrive in proximity with each other because honestly, in East Harlem today, uh, in many parts of New York, it's the same. Trying to keep people close enough together to form habits of common life, uh, it either requires having fortuitously been able to get a hold of big properties like the Catholic Workers or the Bruderhof, or you've got to come up with some alternative method. And we're trying to do the alternative method, which is linked apartments mm-hmm. um, purchased uh, by people's collective buying you know, mm-hmm. putting the money together to buy. No. So it sounds like there are certainly rewarding, wonderful things about place-based ministry, especially in the way in which you're thinking about it, but there are also a, a lot of challenges. What gives you hope? What do you hold on to in moments of challenge? Well, I think that even if people don't manage to stay in the neighborhood long enough to get in an experience similar to what I experienced in 25 years in London, I think it's creating uh, an appetite, it, which might mean that those people go somewhere else and then they have a go, to, a go doing it there where the housing's cheaper. 
So I don't feel like I have to make the whole thing work within this square mile. But the same um, chemistry, the same ethos of humanize people's lives, enable them to slow down, take, take time to be excellent neighbors with each other, to be intrigued and curious and drawn into a pattern of eating together, sharing together, hopefully praying and worshiping together as well. Is, is vital for every city in the, you know, in the States. And I'm thinking that even if we end up with people on a sort of trajectory where they spend their childhood and their teenage years experiencing something from us, with us, which, which shows them that what happens when you don't just exist in bubbles of affinity groups, mm-hmm. um, but have a sort of an openness to your actual neighbor, that can be transported somewhere else when they leave college. So. I don't pin everything on the success of my model, being able to somehow come up with 15 apartments and 30 people that all live within same 10 blocks. That's my plan A. Plan B is you get 30 people that are like thrown to the winds of the four winds. They go in different places, but they carried with them a, a sense of whilst they're all near us, they got five or six years of experience of what it feels like to throw block parties, to eat, eat food with your neighbors and use the sidewalks like they were an extension of your front room. and take care and time to be mixing up the generations and have teenagers listening to the stories of 70 or 80 year olds who they've got no family connection with and you know doing music outdoors again without it being a performance uh just a jamming session having um, art able to be made on the street hung on the fences i mean those are the those are some of the ingredients and the rhythms of life and also food growing you know that whole thing about using the, the ground, what's left of it that's still empty and able to be a source of, um, you know, make it fertile. So there's a, there's a bit like that. It's trying to fulfill the dreams of um, Isaiah 65 and Zechariah 9.9 where you sort of have references to people stand, sitting on their stoop and, and looking out and seeing kids playing in the streets. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to, I mean, getting the rhythms of life to, to, to mirror that, uh, the prophetic image of uh, the city in a, in a more sort of tranquil state, uh, the deep shalom that's possible. Yeah, my hope is that that will be something that people carry with them wherever they end up. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I like that image. Well, I feel like you've said some really great things in that last bit about um, kind of what you imagine the people are going to be able to take with them um, when they go into these other spaces is really hopeful. So I'm glad for that. I think that um, there's a sense in which it's like uh, trying to trying to emphasize locality and localism. Uh, two things. One is when you use the word neighborhood, please reserve it for a walkable neighborhood. Mm. I've heard the word neighborhood used for a, an area that's actually 250,000 people, and that's for me. That's a, that's a region. Right. Uh, it might it might be that in a city like New York, the language can get. Debate. So I just want to say, when you when you when you say neighbourhood, please preserve the original intention, which is the walkable neighbourhood. And then the second thing is related to it, which is that when people say, "Oh, you know, parish neighbourhood, geographic proximity, that's all passe, that's all really not functioning anymore." Who are you talking about? Are you talking about the the, the people with the privilege to travel, commute, to engage with each other across the whole city? Because what about? 60 to 70 percent of my population in this neighborhood who don't travel quite so much because of confinement because they're either not able to spend the money or they're re- re- not very conversant with using social media even now and 
maybe they've got very young kids and they don't really feel they can get the stroller in and off subway or bus. Maybe they're elderly and less mobile and quite isolated and depressed. There's a lot of people uh, who don't travel around the city like the 20 to 40 age group do. And I want to make neighborhoods. The reason I'm fascinated and, and focused on locality, proximity, hyperlocalism is because of the majority of my neighbors who don't travel quite as much as we'd like to think they can. And I want this neighborhood, these streets, these 10 blocks, to be thriving and familiar and friendly and nourishing for those people. And I don't want the image of New Yorkers to be always dominated by the thrusting, fast and vibrant younger set, you know, which are actually able to say, my city is my neighborhood. Well, that's their prerogative, but I want my neighborhood to actually be neighborly. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty, that's pretty radical and, and it's pretty unusual as a Christian church minister, it's pretty unusual, unfortunately, to be so focused on saying, you know, 10 blocks, that's 20,000 people, it really matters that they have a thriving parish. Mm-hmm. And if we can do anything to help create that and capitalize that, I want to be part of it. Right. So. I like that. Narrative lectionary text is Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This is the one where I tried to teach this to the youth group at Devo's the other night, and it was a disaster. Because it's a narrative, but it's not a narrative. It's in the narrative lectionary, but it's not a real story. It's a metaphor, but doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. It doesn't have a plot. So it was really tricky. Yeah, it's just a comparison. Right, and this is part of the Sermon on the Plain, kind of Luke's version of the Matthew's more famous Sermon on the Mount. To capture this through a story, then, since there's not one given here, you need the imagination to tell a story about a fruit tree that doesn't do its job, for instance. What kind of fruit tree doesn't do its job? <laughs> one that you would imagine. <laughs> one in our backyard. Well, that, that too. Well, the other thing is, I guess you could talk about going to the berry farm to pick and if you if things aren't tended well then you could be picking blackberries off of what you think is a blueberry like if it's all mixed up together and it's not well tended then you could kind of at least help people to understand especially because if they're if they're city folk they don't understand how fruit grows at all so the other the other interesting thing about this text though that i think is um, always immediately pertinent is the last line of it that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks it's very easy to uh, help folks to understand the way that they mimic a fruit tree uh, just in, in the way that our words affect people the way that our words determine uh, courses of action uh, even beyond what we want consciously to say but things that just kind of flow from us 
The first thing that comes to my mind, if I was going to preach this text, would, it, would be that I would probably also preach about the fruit of the Spirit. Because I think that helps to define this fruit that is coming from the good heart and the good treasure and the good tree. And so it just kind of gives more clear words about what that fruit looks like. So I probably would do that. And then if I was to try to think creatively about worship, I might include, if I was going to do children, I might include that playful children's song about the fruit of the spirit or something like that to help them get at this idea of not to be just like nebulous about just saying good fruit but what does that look like but I might also talk about actual fruit and when is it good and how do you know it's good and really actually talk about real food that might be kind of a interesting thing for them to get at and some sensory like if you wanted to even bring in sensory items to the worship setting you could bring in fruit fruits Fruit of a tree could be nuts. It's not that it. It's not just cherries and apples. Yeah, yeah. I think it, that this metaphor of food, since not everybody understands the growing of food, is really important. So Wendell Berry has said that uh, eating is an agricultural act, right? Or elsewhere, he might he said that anyone who eats is a farmer by proxy. The idea, of course, is that uh, just by participating in the act of eating, that you have a sense of what of what's good and what's not when it comes to fruit and that you're connected to the places that are growing it whether you're a, a person that's growing it or not so uh, using that image of a banquet here could be very helpful as well fruit salad <laughs> one of those kids shows and there's a song about fruit salad i don't know it's not it's not blues clues it's the one with like the four guys and they wear different colors Teletubbies? No. Anyway, I can't remember. Okay, so then when you skip over the Philippians passage, again, it's not a story. So again, it's like you have to formulate a story. But I guess if you connect it to the Luke passage, then this is another slightly different description of what the fruit looks like. So I, th- I think one way to think about this in terms of a story is that there, there are two stories that are going on in the, in the background here. Um, one is that Paul is writing this letter from prison. And so uh, Philippians is um, next to Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, are probably the two most famous letters, uh, stories from prison that we have. The other thing is that uh, this is, is, one of, is the famous Christ hymn of Philippians 2 um, that you might think about like a ballad in the traditional sense, uh, which is a story that, a song that tells a story. So famous balladeers often are folk musicians, and often uh, even some modern country music will have some of that kind of ballad effect where you tell some sad story about how you were drunk the day your ma got out of prison or something like that. And, um, and so... <laughs> I would pick her up in the rain! Yeah, okay, there you go. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and so, there, so there's a story here, right? But it, it has to be kind of parsed out. Um, but this this text is about the way that our stories tell, or our, our songs tell the stories of our lives, or tell the story of Jesus's life. And so, there's a lot of rich opportunity in here to make those connections. Well, uh, you said him, and now I'm like looking down here trying to figure out what him this is. I mean, it's like, he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, yeah so that, that's one modern hymn. Right. Um, but the, the scholarly suggestion is that this is an ancient hymn that Paul is quoting. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
It's probably quoting uh, like some ancient Christian hymnody um, that was that was original to some of the earliest Christians. Something they would have sung together about Jesus, and he's quoting the lyrics here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this in our experience uh, at Friendship and in some of the other places where we have attended, uh, largely black churches. It is very common for folks to quote from the pulpit during a prayer or as part of a sermon, uh, sometimes the entirety of a, of a song lyric, uh, which again is a connection way back to this very ancient practice of faith. Yeah. I mean, it's very ancient, but it's also like in people's bodies. If they've been singing a song all their lives, even if it was just sung back when they were kids and went to church and they're just back for the first time in 20 years, the moment you hear the words to a song that was a part of your vocal cords and a part of your lungs, the moment it becomes alive again because it's in you. It seems like if if this is a song that he was quoting, you know, it would like enliven the people just by virtue of reliving it again. Right. Yeah, the connection between singing and our memories when you learn something by song, you remember it for far longer than if you learn it without music. The Revised Common Lectionary has several texts. The first one is Acts 1. Yeah, so this is the text where the disciples replaced Judas in the aftermath of Jesus' death and just prior to the Pentecost. Interestingly enough, the way they do that is by casting lots. They have two people that they've selected to potentially take his place. One of one is Joseph and the other uh, is Matthias. And they prayed and they said that, uh, Lord, you know our hearts and uh, you, we want you to show us which one of these two is to take Judas's place by us rolling some dice here. <laughs> and so it's, uh, they're chosen, Matthias uh, wins. Uh, Matthias is the one that's chosen um, by a game of chance. Huh. Well, and then, like, the the John text that mirrors this is Jesus praying for his disciples. So there's something here about discipleship and about the people who are kind of taking on that of Jesus. But this is the disciple, the, the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, loves this one. It's about unity and that Jesus' followers may be one. Isn't that interesting? That like, well, I mean, I know that there were more than just the disciples being one, but if we're talking about the, the disciples and then that they may be one, and then they're also um, just chosen by casting lots, then there's sort of like a lot left to chance, but also a lot of trust that what will come will emerge. It's not necessarily exactly happening at that moment, but they're counting on it to happen. Yeah, and, and there's a trust that um, that however the the dice fall, um, whatever whatever chance happens, that God will somehow work through that in order to bring about uh, what Jesus describes as His joy made complete in them. I wonder if the risky pastor might bring dice to um, the service that day and play a few games, see who the next. Um, elder or chairman of the deacons or <laughs> the next soloist they'll roll the dice and find out it'd be really fun I don't think people would be real happy about it but it'd be fun to try 
Okay, and then the other revised common lectionary text is First John chapter five verses nine through thirteen. It's more about like believing and discipleship. Of course, we know Psalm so one. So Psalm one, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is an introduction to the Psalms. Uh, most most interpreters or uh, readers of the Psalms think of Psalms one and two as kind of standing a little bit outside the rest of the 150 uh, to introduce what's coming. One of the, the interesting um, pieces of, of Hebrew text here, in verse 3, uh, it, most of the translations will say something like uh, that, that those who delight in the law of the Lord are like trees that are planted by streams of water. But the, the word there is actually not planted, it is transplanted. Uh, so th- this is a text that comes um, from a time after the exile. And so the qu- among the questions that are being asked is, is what happens when faith gets uprooted? Uh, what happens when, um, the f- when things go wrong for the faithful? Right? And, and so just a key word like that, um, to be transplanted, is to offer a kind of promise that even after being uprooted and, and subject to the potential disaster of some kind of root shock, that the nourishment that God provides is still available in a new place. Okay, and then like the sensory things that come to mind on this one is that song that came from, I think it was the musical Branches of the Vine. It was like, how blessed, how blessed is the man, the man. That's how I memorized this um, this psalm, but also thank you to Kyle Matthews because there's that trees by the river song that comes to mind here, and that one kind of echoes in my mind as a possibility, even either to use as a poem or for someone to sing, or if people are open to it to play in the background or something. Ooh, but if you're weird and really talking about transplanting trees, okay. Currently, right now, we have extra volunteer peach and apple trees in the yard. And the idea of uprooting them is making me so nervous that I haven't done it, which means that their roots are going to crowd out the other roots of the other trees. But it's very risky to to try to move a tree because if the roots are too bare or if you do it at the wrong time or the weather's bad or if you end up in the wrong spot with the wrong soil, the wrong sun, then they won't live. And trees are really valuable, especially if they're, well, really all trees are valuable, of course, but like if they have fruit or if they are super strong and we can use them for other resources, then you don't want to mess up on that. And like this is, if it's talking about a transplanted and if these righteous people are transplanted trees, then that was done with a lot of care, but a lot of risk. Like there's a lot of difficulty there too. Um, so they're at a at a delicate time here, right? Where a lot could go wrong. Uh, but the so that that verse three there, um, the last word of it is is about prospering. So uh, you could cross reference that over to Jeremiah twenty nine, uh, which is I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for hope and a future, right? To for you to prosper. And so in the midst of this. A perilous time where root shock and where the failure to thrive is a real risk, uh, there stands this promise at the very front of Israel's prayer book 
that these transplanted people yet again will prosper in the midst of this dangerous situation. And there's also the imagery of the Jesse tree where it was like basically chopped down and just one little piece of it kind of grew right, back. Right. It would it's be neat to do like if 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 somebody really wanted to like put this in their particular place, if they had a tree on their property that had any kind of age at all, they could maybe have an arborist tell them how old the tree is, what kind of tree it is. Um, and then from there they could trace that tree's history and kind of bring that to life, like make that tree come alive for the congregants. Mm. And like, let's say the t- tree is a hundred years old. Well, trace, trace the roots back and see what hap- what was happening in that particular place a hundred years ago. And how has that tree continued to prosper in the midst of the history that has been a part of that land? Yeah, the tree becomes a character in your story, in your sermon story. What has it seen, and who has it shaded, who has it fed? Yeah. What are the dangers that it has experienced? What are the storms that it has weathered? Maybe that tree became a, a like a member of the congregation. <laughs> that would be that wouldn't be unlike other wisdom traditions. I mean, even if you think about in pop culture. Like, um, what's that movie? Avatar, Fern Gully. The tree is, like, central to the living and being of that community. And the same, you know, the Lion King. There are several There are several places where, I mean, we know that tree is, like, an archetype for wisdom and resource and shade. It's a place for gathering. It's a place of the hush arbor. So it has, like, all these meanings. But for that tree to become a member of the community would be a really interesting yeah. thing to work and develop over time. Yeah. Another One other piece is, is just the ending of the story. So the image that's given to us in Revelation 22, the beginning of the last chapter of the Bible, is the scene that is heaven, where there is uh, there are trees, or there is a tree of life standing by the river that flows through um, the city of heaven and it's producing all kinds of fruit in its time and so the language there really mimics the language of Psalm 1 that um, you might say that Israel's life and therefore the church's life by extension both begins with the praise of Psalm 1 but also ends in the exaltations of the last chapter of the Bible. Family tree. QC family tree. QC family tree. QC family tree. QC family tree. Here for good. Here for good. I was gonna say I don't want to say it.